there, and welcome back to the Rob Show. It's great to be back with you guys. My name is Robert. I'm a ministry associate with Ministry to State. Here with me, as always, uh, looks like he's doing the Wall Street Journal crossword puzzle. Oh no, he has a different. He has an article out or something. Uh, this is uh, with me as always is Will uh, Stockdale, also a ministry associate with Ministry to State. This is kind of weird because we've got a new rig set up, so we're like using new mics. We've got a mixer and everything, so it almost feels. I know we had our first sort of in-person recording a couple weeks ago, but this kind of feels brand new and kind of awkward, almost. Kind of awkward? You're acting (laughs) like we've never hung out together before. No, this isn't kind of awkward. This is great. It's just different. It's new. It poses, you know, differences and and maybe a challenge or two, but, but not awkward. Robert, I mean, we're just having a conversation. You don't need to be intimidated by it. I know, I kind of am. I don't know why. Oh, my um, goodness. We'll have to get used to it. Um, yeah. Uh, but we have a really great episode uh, planned for you guys today. Um, so much going on uh, in the news uh, related to issues of bioethics that we kind of wanted to kind of stop and take an episode to really talk about some of these things um, and not just really get kind of ingrained in the day-to-day political debates about these things or the policy debates about these things, but actually get into the weeds a little bit about uh, Christian's posture towards bioethics and really the sphere of science in general. Um, I, I think the two stories that really caught our attention, uh, one was from the uh, was from NPR, actually, and it was about, uh, was it embryonic uh, cell research that was mixing human cells and ape cells, uh, ape cells, I believe, um, for uh, the, the larger purpose of growing essentially organs that could be used for transplants uh, in humans. And then the, the second story, which I think a lot of people have pointed attention to, is uh, recent uh, investigations by Judicial Watch into uh, some pretty bad-looking purchases by the FDA of... Um, uh, aborted cell tissues um, or uh, aborted fetal tissue um, for research purposes. And that's a whole kind of a different story. But um, I guess we kind of wanted to start out with some some basic stuff. I mean, Will, what's kind of been your entryway into thinking about bioethics? Because I know this is something that you've kind of spent a little bit of time thinking about. Uh, well, I think very limited, not much at all. But it was part of a course in seminary that I took from uh, Dr. Mark Ian McDowell, uh, who was my professor for pastoral ethics. And so part of the course that we studied was in bioethics and issues surrounding that. And one of the things that the author of this book we used points out is that the field of bioethics is relatively young, especially in terms of other philosophic disciplines and other ethical fields. Um, and it started right around, like it really started coming into its own and becoming its own thing uh, around the 1950s or so. And so which is only 16 years before the Roe v. Wade decision came down. So you have this rapidly changing uh, field of biology and science. You have a whole host of promises and kind of humanitarian beliefs in the sciences that started coming around before the 60s, but really kind of reached a peak in the 60s and then continue on today about what all science could accomplish, what all could technology add to human beings, um, what kind of health and wellness could we bring about, and then what are the what are like the ethical boundaries of that? Um, so that, that's actually kind of a, a different question, I think, actually, is um, what are, uh, when, when you start 
like kind of adding a bionic element to people. What what are what are ethical boundaries there? But for us, you know, these these two articles, um, the one about the uh, embryo that was uh, human cells attached to a monkey host, and then the other about fetal tissue, which uh, came out the same week, I believe, and. I think everybody went back to, and their their memories went back to the recordings of people from Planned Parenthood at a dinner party talking about buying and selling fetal body parts and the horror that came from that. And then the belief of, okay, this is clearly still going on and is, um, is incredibly wicked and evil and should be appalling to us as Christians that human the, the body parts of human persons are being trafficked. Yes. No, I, I, you're exactly right. And I, I want to get to the point that you just made about um, these two stories kind of coming out at the same time uh, and then sort of in, the, in the, the background of almost a year of COVID where people's perceptions of the scientific community, um, I think, has either shifted a little bit or has just been really in the forefront of people's minds. I mean, I, I just haven't thought that much about like what is going on in science, um, as uh, you know, as much as I did like the past year, um, it's just been at the forefront because of everything that's going on. So then you get these two stories sort of lobbed in at the same time. It, I think it did sort of create this moment where there were a lot of people, especially Christians, sitting going like, "What is going on in the sphere of science? Like, does things seem to be going particularly bad right now? So what's happening?" And I think that's kind of one of the questions we want to address today. Um, but I think. You know, as as a Christian who's trying to navigate some of these issues, I, I think I, my kind of default response is to go, okay, well, what are some of my operating principles? Um, as so, as I as I as I uh, as I as a Christian approach issues related to science and bioethics, I, I'm trying to think about what are my basic operating principles. Um, and some of the things that I, I wrote down as I was preparing for this episode. Um, I have so I have one as God is the sovereign creator, and so He is perfectly just to impose moral restraints on scientific inquiry. And I think um, that's one that I don't even think you necessarily have to be a Christian uh, or believe in a, a, a higher God to recognize the value of that operating principle. That we should approach any scientific question with a certain amount of um, ethical skepticism because of insert any science science fiction movie you've ever seen. Yeah, and I think one of the areas where we get into an issue, is we, can, we can say that most everybody, I mean, we meet very few nihilists out there, unless we're watching The Big Lebowski, <laughs> not really running into any nihilists. The type of ethics, though, that are used are going to vary from person to person. In fact, in this article I was reading this morning from The Wall Street Journal, it features a scientist who, after the news came out about the monkey... Uh, host and the human cells, that embryo that was formed, said that basically, I don't know why everyone is panicking so much. This isn't that big of a deal. Its ends are for great humanitarian purposes, which is a very, very utilitarian ethic. I also noticed in the article that they list these concerns here for what could go wrong and problems with it. And it featured um, human concerns about unintended consequences animal warfare, and the moral status of hybrid embryos. There isn't anything explicitly stated, though, about what are we corrupting. I wouldn't expect a scientist to use this phrase, but as an, as an image bearer, as the image of God, what is being 
affected and polluted by mixing it with animal cells. And that's totally absent. There's more concern in this article about animal welfare than there is about fetal human yeah. welfare. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it, it's striking how absent uh, any discussion of... Yeah, you're, you're right. Are we going to see the word, um, you know, the Imago Day in uh, scientific papers? Probably not. But you would expect to see some sort of deference towards human dignity. Um, that's actually what I have down as my second operating principle is primary among moral restraints is the Imago Dei, uh, establishing divinely given dignity uh, to every human being. And so um, I think that one thing we have to be mindful of uh, is that the human person uh, possesses a particular and special dignity. Um, and we ought to be very, very careful when approaching matters that may corrupt it because as this case with the the, um, the NPR story released, um, incredibly troubling to sort of weigh the idea of, well, I think they even do this at the end of the article, like, what if this were to happen? Would that be a human? Uh, if a human brain started developing it within the animal, is that a human? You know, what, what point do we designate a human? I mean, it, it brings up questions of what is a person and what makes it someone a human. And, you know, uh, as Christians, that's an immediately going to take us back um, to image bearing. Um, uh, you, you brought up the, the quote that I think is important, uh, and I, I have it down in my third operating principle. The, the yeah, it's unique that this article, this quote, is quoted by two different articles because it's in your NPR article and it's in my Wall Street Journal article. So well, both people found it. Well, like literally the quote is, I don't see this type of research being ethically problematic, um, says a bioethicist, which is a little interesting. Uh, it's aimed at lofty humanitarian goals. And, I mean, insert any horrible, like, tragedy of human making and you, you know, trace it back far enough and there's probably some person going, well, it's for humanitarian goals. I mean, that's been the justification for how many atrocities throughout world history? Oh, not a few. <laughs> um, I think a word on humanitarianism would be worth commenting on here. Most of the time, I think when people think of humanitarianism, when I think of humanitarianism, I think of the earthquake in Haiti that happened years ago and the people who go down to care. Uh, the, the idea, though, historically and philosophically of humanitarianism uh, is rooted, ideally, in a uh, secular humanism where man is really a cut flower cut off from the divine and left on its own on earth to make the most of life and do what is ever necessary to extend its longevity, uh, its pleasures, its power, whatever you want. But humanitarianism is, at least in the history of ideas realm, is not a Christian concept. It is man is on his own in the world and there is there is no spiritual element to him or her. It is simply a, he is simply a physical material being with physical material hungers, needs, um, without any real consideration for the spiritual side, the eternal side of man and woman. And I think when that happens, uh, you do get to justifiable places where you can sell fetal tissue. You can make hybrid, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but you can make these hybrid embryos because it's serving some greater purpose at the expense of the, the image of God right there. And 
I want to say this. I'm I'm reading um, uh, the Righteous Mind right now by Jonathan Haidt, and you know it's 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 amusing. It's interesting. But what he does in the book early on is he does these different research case studies uh, to figure out what are the moral responses of people. So I won't like go into detail of them. But one is like a, a more simple one is. Um, is a woman who uh, works in a morgue and she has a cadaver that's about to be uh, cremated. And for some reason, this is a scenario, the, the, the woman is interested in tasting human flesh, she's never done it, so she cuts off a little bit, takes it home, cooks it and eat it, eats it. Well, she doesn't get sick, no one finds out about it, no one gets upset, is it wrong? Now, that aside, one of the things that he says was, you know, the interactions people have with it when he puts his forward and he's doing his experiments, people that just have a visceral, initial, uh, intuitive reaction, that's wrong. That's me. That's, <laughs> that's me too. Then he goes, he calls these scenarios harmless taboos. I thought that was really interesting. And I'm like, on what scale, on what spectrum is that harmless? Now, if we're strictly physical, material beings, and I don't get sick I don't have a guilty conscience about it, so I don't have any psychosomatic thing going on, then it is harmless. But if we're more than that, then we have a whole different category and we have a whole different set of questions and engagements, a soul and a body to tend to and take care of. And I think that's one of the things here with this science that it's gonna be really troubling when we reduce everything to just material beings. It becomes very, very hard to consider something harmful or bad if we don't detect any material consequences. Now, eventually, because we believe scripture is true, there will be uh, things that get torn apart, fabric of life gets shredded, but by the time that comes around, it, there's a lot of devastation in the wake. So I think we're dancing around this question, and you sort of alluded at it a couple times, so I just wanna ask it. Are we as a culture afraid of death? I mean, I have my answer. I, I mean, a lot of this just seems to me to be this fear of, of death. I mean, if everything is so focused on the material, the here and now, maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain right now, um, and there's no operating principle of ultimately death is not the final say, that there is an eternity that we look forward to. Um, if you don't have that, then you can justify a lot of things um, in order to keep staving off death. And that's kind of how I feel in a lot of these issues um, is that we're willing to sacrifice a lot of sort of the eternal truths um, as a culture because it sort of keeps putting death at bay because that's that's really our, our enemy is we, we're really still just really afraid of death. I don't know. Maybe that's Maybe that's too much. I don't know. No, I think there's a lot there. I think that um, people used to die in their homes, and now people die shut away from everyone, and very few people actually have to experience it or see it, at least in more prosperous areas. That's pretty much avoided. Um, man has always had a longing for the infinite and the eternal. Right? God has set eternity in the hearts of man, and man has not understood it. That's always been there. Uh, there were better resources to deal with it, before and there was more actual engagement with death and there uh, there's a great quote from a Don DeLillo book called Zero K in which one of the characters says and Zero K is about a uh, cryopreservation center where the, the people's bodies are frozen until science can produce 
the technology so that people can be resurrected out of this frozen casket, basically, and allowed to live forever. One of the scientists there looks at the main character and says, we will finally be able to deliver on the ineffable promises of religion. And so science is now all these wonderful, just indescribable elements of religion that the worship service and a funeral or you know, hope and Christ has always had for us. Those are, those are like, we're cute at one point, but no longer really there. Science now, technology can finally bring us what religion could never deliver, but it always, that man always hoped for. I think we're nearer to that. And so we, we maybe want it more. I was watching on YouTube this old Johnny Carson interview with Billy Graham. A lot of it's very interesting to me. One of the really curious things is that Johnny Carson uh, asks Billy Graham about death, about people being afraid of dying. And I was like, I cannot for the ever imagine. And it was sincere. It was not, it was not just a humorous, like, you know, jab in the ribs, like, is Jesus just, you know, your, you know, uh, get out of hell free card type thing. It was a real, like, earnest question. And I'm like, I cannot for the life of me imagine Kimmel or Fallon asking these questions. And it's not as much Kimmel and Fallon's fault. It's that there's not a cultural appetite for it. There's not a real, you shove this stuff way, way down. It's like, well, I'm not going to deal with death because technology is moving fast enough that I'll probably live to be like 250. So I won't, let's not talk about it because it's, it's really probably not going to happen. And uh, I think that's how a lot of people operate, not everyone. But yeah, I think that we're, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that we uh, like to talk about it for sure. Yeah, that, that just seems to me to be such a uh, factor in all of this that we really – and uh, you sent me that clip and I watched it. And, yeah, like you would never talk about something like that on um, The Tonight Show anymore. You could that would, be, that would be confronting people with reality that they don't want to acknowledge, right? That night, uh, nightly television is for uh, escapism and not dealing with that kind of stuff. And, and, but in some ways it, – it, it's like we've de- sort of thrown all of our energy at, at uh, more existential issues of like politics and things like that. Um, it's, it's interesting that we sort of lost the art of dying well, which I think has been really a um, uh, uh, something that's been a, in the forefront of humans' minds for centuries, for generations of, of sort of dying well. And now we don't even want to talk about dying at all. It's just, it's just interesting. And that, that kind of moves on to my, my second theory. And I mean, so let me ask you this question. Is this a unique problem, sort of the, the, the willingness to cross moral and ethical lines in science? Is this, a, is this a phenomenon that's unique to science, uniquely bad in science, or is this happening in other spheres, entertainment, academia, what have you? Like, do you see this playing out in other places, or do you think science is particularly bad in this issue? No. Well, I don't know. I think it depends on what science is working with. It's going to have unique and different consequences. Again, in this article, this Johnny Carson interview, somehow they get on the topic of like content in films. And Billy Graham actually, he says, when it comes to sex and violence in movies, he said that he's actually much more concerned about violence in movies than sexual content in movies coming out. And most of the time, I think most Christians would be like the sexual content, but the violence was very disturbing. And I think it should be disturbing. Why did God send the flood? Well, one of the reasons was there was great violence on the earth. God does not like violence. So, I want to. I can bring that up to say it's not unique to science, and we benefit so much from science. I mean, the fact that we're even doing this recording is because of science. That we're able to to do all of these things. I, you know, I took some vitamins earlier and 
have ibuprofen and I mean like so there's so many good things with science there I mean we're gonna we're gonna what, what, want what we want and unless there is some um, moral there stopping us it's gonna be very hard to keep people from going uh, from going after it yeah that's that's well said I don't know I I, I look at a lot of this stuff and you know I went to uh, a liberal arts college and um, one thing that uh, I've noticed uh, that I noticed before I, I went to that school and, and more so now afterwards is um, how much the liberal, the liberal arts really are dying away. Um, you can kind of look at the news stories coming out of different colleges and universities of how many schools uh, are on Howard University here in DC cutting the classics department, um, other schools that are cutting humanities out of their degree, degree options just because, you know, it's not as um, financially uh, worthwhile to them as, as sort of the social sciences and the hard sciences. And um, I always think of a quote that uh, the, the president of, of my alma mater said, which is that, um, sci- you know, science is wonderful. It, learning how to code is a great thing. Um, but there's, different, there's a difference between uh, teaching somebody how to code and teaching somebody what to code and, more importantly, what not to code. Um, and I think that's kind of... As I, as I sort of survey uh, the modern academy, uh, the willingness to cut the liberal arts, the humanities away from the sciences, I, I think that's a, a natural repercussion. Is you're gonna you're not gonna have scientists, uh, you're not gonna have uh, brilliant minds trained in physics, biology, chemistry, who not just know what experiments to pursue, but what experiments not to pursue. And I think that's something that the humanities teach us. So I, want, I wonder how much that's contributing to this as well. Yeah, I mean, we're increasingly utilitarian and pragmatic, and even a lot of the arts and humanities are put to that end, to, to, a, to a more pragmatic endpoint, and that's the driving ethic. I, uh, there's a bioethics book I have in front of me here uh, called Bioethics, a Primer for Christians. It's very short. I recommend it. It's by Gilbert Mylander. I don't. I'm butchering that name. M e i l a e n d e r, and he has a few quotes in here that I think um, are important for us to remember. He takes a very realist approach, a very biblically Christian theology based approach to bioethics and to what extent we ought to pursue these things. I remember an interview with N.T. Wright and Peter Thiel that was about the topic of transhumanism, which is the whole area of bioethics. And transhumanism is short for transitional humanism. And it is basically the, the middle way between the, the, the old fashioned human like you and me and the future human that is um, uploaded with technology, with uh, the idea of singularity, which is a consciousness uploaded to a computer, the idea of cryopreservation, um, so basically, how do we make, through the promises of technology, help people live forever? Uh, and it, it's, it's fairly terrifying what all is being pursued and sought after in that effort. Um, but in this interview, they, they ask N.T. Wright, Peter Thiel thinks that one day we'll get people to live incredibly long, if not forever. And then they ask N.T. Wright, and they say, how long do you think, do you think people will be able to live forever? He says, no. And they're like, well, geez, you cynic. <laughs> Why? <laughs> And he says, N.T. Wright bringing down the, the vibe of the party. Man, boom. <laughs> Huge buzzkill. And he says, basically, because the Bible tells me so. 
that is his answer. He says, we may be willed to live to 150 years, but sin is so real and so pervasive and its consequences and the death that it brings are as real as this table in front of us. And so no, man will not be able with technology to live forever. And it was very comforting to have a biblical response. But this same book um, does a similar thing and it's very, it's very real and it provides a nice primer to get into these topics. But he says this, he says, we must be prepared to acknowledge that there may be suffering. We are free to end, but ought not. That there are children who might be produced through technological means, but ought not. That there is valuable knowledge that might be gained through use of unconsenting research subjects, but ought not. Think of the Tuskegee um, mm -hmm. research that happened. I think that's a, a perfect example of things that ought not to have been done that were. So we recognize this in hindsight, but we're maybe we don't want to stop progress because of this fear of what if there's something that can come. But um, the, the other is he quotes from the uh, World Health Organization in 1946. He says this. The WHO offered the classic example of such an expansive definition of health when it described health as, quote, a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. Hmm. So, and he makes a difference between lowercase health, lowercase h health and uppercase h health. And that's certainly an uppercase h health that... Uh, were pursuing a utopian vision of just absolute beatific vision, basically. Um, like, I don't want to sound like a Luddite. I don't want to sound like someone who's anti... I'm not anti-science. I You were very pro-doctor uh, in science when you almost cut your finger off last year. Oh, yes, <laughs> I was. I wish that the doctor had spent more than five minutes and then charged you 250 bucks. <laughs> just, like, squeeze my... That's healthcare policy. We're Gosh, not there yet. He shows up and we're not squeezes about my that. fingers like, yep, you need stitches. And I'm like... <laughs> I could have here, told you that. I've been here for four hours. I know, sir, doctor. I know what I'm here for. And then he had his PA do it. So that's, <laughs> that's great. Anyways, getting back to the, the point of all of this is that there, uh, these are not easy discussions because I think sometimes you'll have someone who might kind of derisively say, well, why are you against this technology when you're for that technology? And um, some of it might be intuitive, but others of it are are rooted in our understanding of mankind, how we are made in God's image, and, and what is what is right and wrong in light of that. Yeah, I think you're right. The I think it's fair to say that Christians are going to debate around maybe some of the particulars and sort of some of the uh, minutiae of some of these things. Um, uh, I, I think a good example of this is there's a lot of Christians... I think it, in good faith debate about things like birth control and, and what have you. I think that what's going to be important is Christians, especially in as big H health, uh, becomes more and more so the dominant viewpoint of the broader culture. It's going to be important for Christians to be able to stand um, uh, for what they believe and, and, and draw those hard ethical lines. Uh, we might not be able to sort of influence the policies uh, or what have you, but personally living that way, um, I think goes a long uh, way in this kind of thing. One, one of my favorite sci-fi um, shows, you know I love science fiction, one of my favorite sci-fi shows, uh, which I would not recommend because it's got a lot of stuff that's probably not good for you to watch, but uh, Altered Carbon on Netflix. Um, and what's interesting in that show, in the first season, this is a, you're talking about uh, 
what was it singularity and uh, like uploading your consciousness onto computers and stuff that's what this whole show is dealing with and uh and then basically the, the human mind is then imported into random uh bodies that's the the carbon uh and what's interesting is that in in a culture that that's sort of the, the norm is everybody has their their um consciousness ba- uh, consciousness backed up and oh. they basically can live forever um it's the the super weird religious people that still choose to die um, but they're actually the, some of the most influential people uh, in the culture because they have this reckless, uh, br- uh, I don't know how you want to call it, like uh, they're just brave in the face of death. And I think um, that's something that Christians can really, uh, that's, a, that's one way that I think Christians can be really influential uh, in the sphere of bioethics. Christians can uh, promote a culture of life uh, that is uh, not just against uh, things like abortion, which you know is pretty universal now amongst the, the Christian community, but uh, very much standing up against assisted suicide, um, and even you know things that necessarily aren't related to life and death, but you know uh, being concerned about you know the the dignity of life and things like poverty and um, mental illness, disabilities, things like that. Um, so that that's kind of um, something I, I'm thinking about, and then I think also just. Related to that is being able to speak better about death. You know, I read uh, J. Todd Billings' latest book, um, and that was one of his things, is that we're just not very good at talking about death anymore. And um, I I do think that if we really want to um, uh, be influential in this issue of bioethics, uh, we sort of need to uh, practice what we preach and sort of adopt the, uh, the early church worldview and mindset of laughing in the face of death and to a certain extent um, and being very uh, aware that death it, for us death is dead um, and it doesn't it no longer reigns over our lives um, like it used to and so I think that that can also be incredibly persuasive uh, in a culture that's increasingly afraid of death got two great Johns here we got John Dunn death be not <laughs> proud and the death of death by John Owen so back to back and with this also is um, the tricky topic of suffering hmm. in that... Yeah, we need to talk about that. Suffering is not a thing that we are to go after. Or celebrate to a certain extent. Yeah, I think we can celebrate how people suffer, mm-hmm. but not the suffering itself. I think for people who say we need to suffer more, we should... Pres- I'm like, man, that's a pretty cush position to be in. <laughs> like, Life is really hard, isn't it? Why? Like, What kind of life are people leading who say... That we need to go find it. Um, I don't know if there's masochism. I, I remember in college that was one of the things people always said. They'd be like, "I just, I just want the Lord to break me." I just want the Lord to break me. <laughs> be careful about I was that. Like, My goodness, <laughs> what? Are you not paying attention, or are you masochist? <laughs> what is happening here? But the, suffering is one of the means God uses to sanctify us into greater likeness of His Son. And I, I don't love suffering. I don't seek it out. I don't, I don't prefer it at all. And it's, it's very uncomfortable and I can get very, I can get very upset, very discouraged. I can question God. I mean, strings of my heart start getting pulled that expose a lot of stuff in there when I face suffering. Um, but last week we mentioned, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, who, who put a blurb on the back of the RC, RC Sproul yeah. book and that is a woman who has lived a life of suffering and has lived a life of suffering well and faithfully, um, who has, a, has a, her eyes fixed on the cross and does not shake them. Uh, that, that's something to look for. I, I would, I'm sure she has 
some thoughts on this, but looking to suffering well instead of the, the, the naive attempt to eliminate suffering from the earth because it, it won't happen. And, and this again goes back to humanitarianism. It's a belief in this pantheon of human figures that through fall or, or human activities that if we just adhere to these, that all suffering will be removed. And it's like, guys, I don't think that's certainly not a biblical vision of the world. No, I think that's exactly right, and I, I can't I can't think of a better way to end it than on that. I think this on is, suffering. We want to, well, it's yeah, a better I mean, way to end it. I mean, it's a hard issue, and you know, I think we're still both grappling with a lot of this stuff right now. But, yeah. um, I, you know, maybe we'll probably return to it at some point. But I think that um, what you said about uh, fixing our eyes on the cross and suffering well um, is just good advice right now, especially as I think at a time when a lot of people feel like they're suffering after a year of COVID and, and all the. Uh, circumstances around that a lot of people have lost loved ones um you know all all these things we can sort of become obsessed with relieving suffering constantly um instead of necessarily thinking about uh suffering well so i think that was that's a great way to, to end it thank you so much for listening to the will and rob show as always you can follow us on twitter i'm at rd hassler will is at stockdale will 